Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. If you're like me, the word hypnosis probably makes you think of TV magicians and end-of-the-peer entertainment, but our guest on this episode is here to change that. David Spiegel is Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioural Sciences at the Stanford School of Medicine and a world-leading authority on the therapeutic potential of hypnosis. He joined Hannah McInnes to clear up myths and offer practical ways of integrating hypnosis into your life. I just am going to start with a big question, perhaps an elemental question, but I don't think we can move on without beginning here. And that's just to ask you, what is hypnosis? Can you define it for us? Sure. Hypnosis is just a state of highly focused attention. It's it's like looking through a telephoto lens with a camera. What you see, you see with great detail, but you're less aware of the context. It's been called believed in imagination. And uh, people who are reasonably hypnotizable are in and out of hypnotic-like states all the time. So when you get so caught up in a good movie that you forget you're watching the movie, or if you stop and watch a sunset and just get totally absorbed in it, that's a hypnotic-like state. It's highly focused attention, putting outside of conscious awareness things that would ordinarily be in consciousness. Right now, we can do a little experiment, Hannah. You're already so interested in what I'm saying that you're probably not aware of your body touching the chair you're sitting in. If you are, we could stop the interview now. Um, but we naturally do that. We naturally detach ourselves or dissociate from distractions when we're intensely focused. And that's what you do in hypnosis. You said it, a believability at the beginning. Does that mean that hypnosis only works if you believe in it? No, it's not about, it's it's ability, but not believability. So I've had patients who think, I don't believe in hypnosis, it's nonsense, who are very hypnotizable and they're off, they're, they're gone into a, a focused state. It's, it's a capacity, it's a mental capacity that some of us have to a greater extent than others. And so it doesn't matter whether you believe in it or not, what matters is do you have the ability. The peak period in the human life cycle for hypnosis is the latency years in childhood. So all eight-year-olds are in trances all the time. As you know, if you call your eight-year-old in for dinner, he doesn't hear you, he's off playing somewhere. We tend to lose it. Some of us lose some of that ability. When our brains mature and we get into um, what are called formal operations, we value logic more than experience as we grow up. And so some people, by the time they hit their 20s, have lost some of that ability, but most of us keep a good bit of it. And the hypnotizability you have when you're 21 is what you're going to have when you're 51. Uh, it's as stable as IQ when we're adults. The type of hypnosis that you're talking about i.e. when you're in sort of sucked into watching a movie, as you said, or a book, or what we sometimes think of as a flow state if we're really engrossed in and involved in something. Feels to me like something meditative, something trance-like, something different, though, to what you would imagine you're put under if you go to see someone like yourself. Well, it is different from the popular conception, Hannah, primarily because all hypnosis is really self-hypnosis. I don't do things to people. I identify their ability and then teach them how to use it. And so I could talk at someone all day long. If they're not hypnotizable, it's not going to happen. And conversely, anybody who has some hypnotic ability can learn to use it for themselves. You know, we come with this three pound organ on the top of our bodies that is connected to every other part of our body, helps us run and plan and do everything, but it doesn't come with the user's manual. 
And so very often we have abilities and ways to use our brains that we're not fully aware of. And so what I do is teach people how to use the capacity that they already have. Okay, so before we come to some of the things that we might come to you with or ways in which we can help ourselves, such as sleep and anxiety and stress and and all things like that, can I ask you what prompted your interest and began your journey in hypnosis? Uh, Well, Hannah, it's something of a genetic illness in my family. Both of my parents uh, were psychiatrists and psychoanalysts. And um, my father, as he was being prepared to go off to fight in World War II, he, went to, he was a battalion surgeon in, in North Africa, met a, uh, a Viennese refugee who couldn't serve in our army, uh, but who had learned about hypnosis because he was a forensic psychiatrist in Austria. And he had a smallpox scar in the middle of his forehead. And he noticed that the prisoners he was interviewing would be talking and suddenly their head would sort of go down and they seemed to go into some altered state. So he started learning about hypnosis and using it to help people. My father used it to help soldiers who had combat stress reactions or who were injured and in pain. And when he came back, he went back to his psychoanalytic training but he continued doing some hypnosis. And he had one supervisor who said, don't give it up. You're going to give a course in the Institute because I'm going to take it. And um, so he kept doing it. And he began to see over time that he was sometimes getting farther, faster using hypnosis with his patients than talking three or four days a week on the couch. So the dinner table conversations were pretty interesting. Uh, I got to watch him film patients every once in a while. And so when I got to medical school, uh, there was a hypnosis course. So I took it. And my first patient ever, uh, I was on at Children's Hospital in Boston. Um, and the nurse said, Spiegel, your next patient has status asthmaticus. She's having trouble breathing, room 342. And I could follow the sound of the wheezing down the hall. I walk in the room, pretty 15-year-old girl, knuckles white, struggling for breath. Her mother standing there crying, nurse in the room. She had not been responsive to epinephrine, which is the usual initial treatment. Uh, they were going to give her general anesthesia and put her on steroids. So I thought, I don't know what else to do. So I got her hip. I said, you want to learn a breathing exercise? And she nods. I get her hypnotized. And then I sort of break into a sweat when I realize we haven't gotten to asthma in the course yet. So I came up with something very clever. I said, each breath you take will be a little deeper and a little easier. And within five minutes, she's lying back in bed. She's not wheezing anymore. Her mother stopped crying. The nurse ran out of the room. My intern came looking for me. And I thought he was going to pat me on the back and say, geez, what you do, Spiegel? He said, the nurse has filed a complaint with the nursing supervisor that you violated Massachusetts law by hypnotizing a minor without parental consent. Now, Massachusetts has a lot of weird laws, but that's not on the list. And her mother was standing next to me when I did it. So he said, well, you're going to have to stop doing this. And this is the story with hypnosis. There's such prejudice against it. And I said, why? He said, it's dangerous. I said, I'm talking to her, and you call that dangerous, but you were going to give her general anesthesia and put her on steroids? I don't think so. And I said, tell you what, take me off the case if you want, but as long as she's my patient, I'm not going to tell her something I know isn't true. This is not dangerous. So he stormed out of the room. There was a council of war among the intern, the chief resident, the attending physicians, and they came back on Monday with a radical idea. They said, let's ask the patient. I don't think they'd ever done that before there. And she had been hospitalized monthly for the previous three months. She had one subsequent hospitalization, but went on to study to be a respiratory therapist. 
And I thought that anything that could help a patient that well, that fast, had to be worth looking into. And I've been doing it ever since. And she was the first of about 7,000 people I've used hypnosis with in the course of my career. It's so interesting. I mean, hypnosis is, isn't it, the oldest Western concept of psychotherapy. But as your example there shows, where you said prejudice, people can think of it as dangerous. There's also still a lot of stigma, a lot of skepticism. Why do you think that is? And is that changing? Well, I sure hope so. And I hope you're going to help me change it. But there is. And I think, you know, some of it comes from there. There are at least two sources. One of them is the prejudice against treatments that involve changing how you think, feel and manage your body. Because we tend to have this prejudice in medicine that the only real treatments are physical ones, incision, ingestion, injection. Um, and you're not really doing anything if you just change the way you manage your body, the way you perceive things, the way you control your body. And that's just not true. We can do a lot of very powerful things in the way we manage our body. The other is people have seen stage show hypnosis. They've seen, you know, the football coach dance like a ballerina and make a fool of himself. I don't like stage hypnosis, but it kind of makes, it makes fun of it. it and it uses it to humiliate people instead of to help people. And, and I don't like that. The third thing is pharma that, that, you know, I don't, I don't have a team of ex cheerleaders going around to doctors, uh, convincing them that it's great for your patients to teach themselves hypnosis because there's no money in it. Um, but pharma does. Now, I'm a doctor. I use medications. There are times when that is absolutely the best thing to do, but not all the time. And and you see now with the opiate catastrophe going on in the U.S. and around the world, uh, people are dying. 70,000 Americans died last year from opioid overdoses. It's hard. It can be horribly dangerous. Opioids are a good drug for acute pain and a terrible drug for chronic pain. But a lot of people are now hooked on it. So it, it's a kind of prejudice that what we do is either useless or dangerous or both. And it is very helpful to a lot of people. I mean, it's extraordinary, the statistics about the crisis, as you mentioned, still, and, and doesn't sound like it's getting any better. Do you feel any hope that Americans and generally people in the Western world can be convinced that rather than taking drugs, these sorts of notions medicine that isn't physical, as you say, can help? Well, I, I I do have hope, and I'm trying to make hope happen by, we co I co-founded a little company called Rivery, R-E-V-E-R-I. We have digital interactive self-hypnosis to help people with problems like pain, stress, insomnia. We find that, that more than four out of five people who use the Reverie app for pain control get immediate relief from their pain within 15 minutes. They feel less pain than they did before when they started. The strain and pain lies mainly in the brain, and people can learn to manage their pain perception with techniques like self-hypnosis. And I wanted to make it available as an inexpensive alternative to a lot of other treatments for pain that have much worse side effects. So you say pain is strain on the brain, and I think a lot of people would say, okay, perhaps, but I can't think my pain away. How does that work, the idea that hypnosis can be used to something so physical? We know now from studies using EEG and functional magnetic resonance imaging 
that with techniques like hypnosis, we can literally change the way the brain processes pain. Pain is a combination of signals that come in special pathways, the lateral spinothalamic tract up to the brain. But it's the way the brain interprets those signals has a lot to do with how much pain you feel. So the brain is the central processing center. And there are athletes who break their ankle during a, a football game who don't realize that they've done it until the coach looks at their swollen ankle and says, what happened? Women have delivered children for millennia without chemical anesthesia. And you know, they'll tell you it, it hurts, but it's, it's not a, a kind of pain that they cannot learn to manage. And so the idea that any adverse signal that comes to your brain is automatically going to result in the same experience of pain is simply not true. So how do you do that? How do you help a patient? How do we help ourselves to alleviate pain? Sure. Well, I'll give you an example, Hannah. I had a, a lovely young woman who was seven months pregnant come to see me. She had very bad lower back damage and terrible pain. And as, of course, as the baby grew, the pain got worse because the, the weight in her upper body was higher. Um, and um, she uh, couldn't take medications because she was pregnant. And I had her, her pain was seven out of 10 when we started. And I said, uh, I got her hypnotized. She was quite hypnotizable. And I said, where do you naturally feel more comfortable, the most comfortable? She said, taking a warm bath. I said, good. Well, we're going to take a bath. So I had her imagine that she was in the bathtub feeling the sense of warmth, a kind of tingling numbness penetrating into her body. And after a few minutes, she looked different. And I said, how are you feeling? She said, I feel better. I feel warm. And I said, at the end, um, how's your pain level now? She said, it's three out of 10 instead of seven out of 10. And But she looked angry. And I said, what are you angry about? And she said, why in the hell are you the last doctor I got sent to instead of the first? She'd have nerve stimulators implanted, all kinds of things that didn't work. And so you can often comfort yourself by imagining yourself in situations where you actually do get relief from the pain experience. And you can trigger those same circuits of pain relief in your brain that you do when you take a warm bath or to take a medication for that runner. And that is something that people experiencing pain can do for themselves. They don't need to come to see you. No, they don't. They don't need, I mean, they can, and there are many clinicians who are well-trained in hypnosis who can help them. But my thought is, you know, I've learned things from helping people that can be used without my actually being there. And so we built this app reverie where you hear my mellifluous voice. I ask a question, you give an answer, the system processes the answer, and you'll get a different instruction next, depending on how you've answered the previous question. So it's as much like being in the office with me as we could make it. And so I guide you through an experience of finding ways that you can modulate your experience of pain, or what I say is filter the hurt out of the pain. And uh, for for four out of five people who use Reverie, they feel immediate pain relief from using it. One of the other things that you help people with is insomnia. Again, I wonder if you could give us some examples of how people can do that themselves. Glad to do it. Well, I'm a professor. I'm good at putting people to sleep, you know, <laughs> hopefully not while I'm lecturing. What we have people do is a couple of things. First of all, we approach the kind of stress that keeps you from getting to sleep or wakes you up in the middle of the night 
as a bottom-up, a body-up problem rather than a top-down problem. So most of the time, if you're worried about something or you're upset or angry, your body starts to react to that. Your muscles get tense. Your heart rate goes up a little bit. Your blood pressure goes up. You start to sweat. And then you think, oh, my God, this must be really bad. So you feel worse. And then your body says, "Uh uh-oh, he's feeling worse now. It's like a snowball rolling downhill. It picks up momentum. Instead, we say, let's use self-hypnosis first just to make your body comfortable. So I get people hypnotized. They say, imagine you're floating in a bath, a lake, a hot tub, or just floating in space. Let your body feel comfortable. And then that becomes a matrix in which you can then face a problem using, uh, I have people look on an imaginary screen, but keeping your body comfortable. If your body gets tense, let's go back and help it be more comfortable again. And then you divide the screen in half, you picture what you're stressed about, or you just imagine it like a home movie, but not inside your body. Not You're looking at it, but you're not feeling it in the same way. And you can either just let it go on and not think about it, or you can figure a way to deal with whatever the problem is, but from a better point of view. We've added recently to that a kind of breathing that very quickly helps people reduce their physical tension. And you could even try it now if you want, because we combine this with the self-hypnosis to help people get to sleep. So the idea here is to get comfortable, take in a half a breath using your belly. So diaphragmatic breathing, inhale, hold. Now expand your chest and inhale through your nose and then slowly exhale through your mouth. Nice, slow exhale. Now again, inhale through your nose using your belly. Hold. Expand your chest and fill your lungs. And slowly exhale through your mouth. One more time. Inhale through your nose using your belly. Hold. Fill your lungs completely and slowly exhale through your mouth. How are you feeling now? Very relaxed. (laughs) We don't want our audience to necessarily um, drift off to sleep. What's the difference then between that and, say, for example, meditation or just genuine breathing exercises, meditative breathing exercises? Uh, Well, this is one, you know, there are different kinds of breathing exercises, some of which actually will get you roused up. Uh, so there's something called box breathing, where you breathe, hold, exhale, hold for equal amounts of time. And uh, that that's a, a technique that's used. Uh, it's called tactical breathing by the Navy SEALs to get ready for some dangerous, difficult mission. So breathe, the way you breathe can change your level of arousal. And it's very interesting, actually, that the brain can kind of set its own level of activity and arousal depending on how it makes you breathe. And breathing is right at the edge between conscious and unconscious body control. You know, raising my hand is conscious. Uh, the way we breathe is often unconscious, but you can make it conscious if you want. And so um, the way you breathe, and particularly emphasizing exhale, tends to trigger parasympathetic nervous system activity. It tends to slow your body, your heart rate, your blood pressure down. Whereas rapid breathing can do the opposite. It can uh, increase your heart rate and blood pressure. So it part of it is how you breathe. So certain kinds of breathing tend to be naturally 
more relaxing. And a lot of us breathe too rapidly and too shallowly, and we make ourselves anxious by by doing that, actually. Somebody having a panic attack will be breathing very quickly, and they don't efficiently transfer oxygen and carbon dioxide, but they make themselves more and more anxious. So part of it is the way you breathe can have different effects on your body. As far as meditation goes, that's somewhat different. Meditation is Eastern. I have great respect for the tradition. Millions of people are doing it. But it's, the idea there is not to control something. Uh, it's just to be, to observe, to let your feelings and emotions just flow and don't fight them, just let them be, to check out, yes, parts of how your body feeling and to cultivate compassion. But it's an Eastern tradition that is by design not meant to solve a problem. It's just meant to be different. Get over yourself, be different. Hypnosis is Western. We use it for a purpose. Uh, my goal is not to have millions of people going around and hypnotized. It's to have millions of people able to use a state of self-hypnosis to go to sleep, to manage pain, to stop smoking, to focus more intently, um, uh, to eat more sensibly. Those are the things we use hypnosis for as a tool to live better and manage your body better. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay. And one of the things that you write about uh, a few papers of yours that I've read, seen on Reverie as well, is how to use uh, hypnosis specifically for anxiety, a really common problem, and stress, and specifically that those two things are very different, but this works for both. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Well, the, we have apps on on Reverie and people if they want to try it, they're most welcome to do it. The, the first seven days are free. You can download it from uh, the App Store if you have an iOS phone or from Google Play if you have an Android. And you can try it. Just interact with it and see what it's like. What we try to do, stress is something everybody lives with. Stress is a natural part of life. Uh, if, if you're not stressed at all, you're probably not living. You know, it goes with the territory. But Stress can become burdensome, and particularly these days with all the terrible news coming in, we're naturally carrying around a burden of stress, and it triggers this interaction between mental arousal and physical arousal that can make it harder to manage. So the idea is you go into a state of self-hypnosis, you imagine you're floating in a bath, a lake, a hot tub, or floating in space. You inhale through your nose and slowly exhale, and gradually but quickly, you can help your body feel more comfortable. And that's a way of saying, okay, there is a stress there that I need to deal with at times, but I can just detach my physical reaction from my mental reaction to it and in a calmer way address whatever the stress is and what, if anything, I need to do about it. Anxiety is a more chronic kind of maladaptive stress where you're anxious all the time. You're worried about things you don't really need to be anxious about. And the problem is that your state of physiological arousal and discomfort becomes an internal confirmation that there really is something wrong out there and something has to be done. So if you can just learn to balance and control your physiological reaction with self-hypnosis, you can 
learn to manage your anxiety better um, and and come to recognize it for what it is. It's a kind of a maladaptive alarm system that's going off when nobody is trying to break into the house. You just you 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 can see it from a different point of view and become an expert at managing your body better, controlling your body so that it will help you to deal with whatever it is that's stressing you out. Can you give us a specific example of that? Because it, again, feels potentially easier said than done, because, of course, what you're saying is those physical symptoms. It's like a vicious circle. They make you feel more anxious. They're the manifestations of anxiety. They make you feel more anxious. But perhaps you could give us a specific example as what you can do to identify those and to try and rationalize it is what it sounds like you're do- saying we must do. Well, you know, people always ask me, well, do you use it yourself, Spiegel? And the answer is yes. I, I was trying to water ski and I was kind of anxious about it because a number of times I had wound up face first in the water and uh, felt kind of foolish. And I realized that I was doing things that that made ha- inevitable what should could have happened but shouldn't have. And so I went to a state of self-hypnosis and I just said to myself, arms straight, knees bent, because what I, I was doing the opposite. I was holding back on my arms and keeping my knees stiff, which didn't give me the flexibility I needed when waves came along. And from that point on, my body did what I told it to do. And I was focused more on what I could do to better manage the stress than my fear of letting go of the rope or falling face first into the water. I also, I had surgery on my shoulder. I had a dislocating shoulder. I had a three-hour operation to repair my shoulder. But they prescribed a bunch of pain medication afterwards and some to calm anxiety after surgery. And I didn't want to take that. Um, And so I just imagined myself in a warm bath, um, feeling my shoulder beginning to heal. And I interpreted the worry about how much it hurt Um, and was something wrong had the surgery not been done right into a sign that my body was healing itself. And uh, I went and looked at my medical record. I worked in the same hospital, so I got to look at the record. And the the surgeon wrote, a patient using very little pain medication, we mustn't have cut many nerves. Well, I I got a scar from here to here. I can tell you they cut a lot of nerves. But um, it's a way of teaching your brain how to reinterpret things that worry you in a way that's more realistic and doesn't get amplified by the way your body is reacting. And we have plenty of evidence that the brain can literally change how it processes your your anxiety and your pain. When you talk about that, it reminds me of my reading of your paper about phobias and using hypnosis for the many people who are frightened of flying. And this idea of trying to rationalize or trying to talk about the probable versus the possible, which I think we call it catastrophizing. Many of us are very prone to do. And I feel like you're sort of giving us examples of how hypnosis can prevent us from doing that. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Hannah. And, you know, um, people who practice hypnosis are very careful about what they say to people. And one of the things that we all go around saying is that the worst thing you can do is tell somebody, don't think about purple elephants. You know, what are you going to be thinking about? Instead, we get people to focus on what they're for. So for people who are have airplane phobias, and it keeps about 10% of the population off of airplanes, not using them for that reason. I say there are three things I want you to concentrate on, and I teach them how to do self-hypnosis and say, one, float with the plane. 
So when you get on the plane, buckle the seatbelt. And when you feel it moving, feel your body moving with it the way you would enjoy a ride in a carnival, you know, that the motion can feel good. If you're fighting the plane, it'll feel bad. So get your body to float with the plane. The second thing is think of the plane as an extension of your body. Um, uh, if you want to get from one place to another, you can walk. If you want to get there faster, you can take a bicycle. A bicycle is an extension of your body. So is the airplane. And the pilot is the extension of your brain, who you have chosen through choosing a good airline to manage the plane. So rather than feeling trapped in a tin can at 35,000 feet, you see the plane as an extension of your body helping you fly and the pilot as an extension of your brain managing it. And the third thing that you mentioned is think about the difference between a possibility and a probability. It's always possible that another great California earthquake will happen right now and things will start shaking and falling down around me, but it isn't probable. We tend to confound the, the vividness with which we can see a bad outcome with the likelihood that it would happen. Now, these days on this planet, a lot of terrible things are happening, but it isn't happening all the time with everybody. And so if you think about those three things, we found that a single session of self-hypnosis and two-thirds of people are sending me emails from around the world that they've taken a flight. Most people feel better uh, when, they're, when they're doing that. Another sort of fun story about phobias, my, my late father uh, was teaching people to deal with, a, with dog phobias. Some people get very scared of dogs. And when you live in midtown Manhattan, you're likely to run across a lot of dogs. Uh, this woman was at a fancy dinner party that her husband had thrown and um, a, a little French poodle was brought into the room and she screamed and jumped up and knocked the table over on everybody, the food, the wine, everything. And her husband said, get fixed or we've had it. You know, I can't stand this. So she went to see my father who taught her with hypnosis to think of the difference between wild and tame animals and that tame animals were friends, even though wild animals weren't. He got her to have a friend hold his dog and promise not to, you know, let him go. And she came up to him and thought, dog friend. So about six months later, my father called to see how she was doing. And a little boy answered the phone and he said, can I speak to your mommy? And he said, who's calling? And my father said, Dr. Spiegel. And the boy said, that's funny. Spiegel's in heat. She had gotten herself a dog and named it Spiegel. So... Hypnosis can be very helpful in uh, in helping people get over phobias. Uh, I've had a long history of phobia of, of flying, and those three points have made me, they really did actually help the, the things that you just, I haven't used it on a plane yet, but just imagining them very helpful to imagine taking that on board, quite literally. But you were mentioning about children being very susceptible and in a trance slightly all the time, really, or, or much of the time. But I was listening to a recent podcast that you did, fascinated. The host was asking about his kids and how much trouble he has, for example, getting his kids to eat certain things. And you were giving some very useful, I think, advice to any listeners, viewers out there, how to use these tactics on children and make the most of their hypnotizability. Well, I mean, children naturally have wonderful imaginations. And so you can, you can corral that. When my kids didn't want to go to sleep, all kids, you know, it, it's tough because when kids are tired, they get hyperactive. The last thing they want to do is settle down and go to sleep. And so I, I would have my kids take uh, an imaginary ride down a river 
and just you say you're in the boat and you're looking at things pass by and there's a deer over there and a fox over there. And gradually they would get in this more relaxed frame of mind where they weren't doing something physically active in their imagination, but they were enjoying uh, what they saw. And I remember one night uh, my son hadn't quite gotten to sleep and he found me out in the back and he said, Dad, I need a professional. <laughs> I need somebody to help me get to sleep. Similarly, with eating, if it's sometimes you can use their good imagination to say, well, you know, you have your pet stuffed animal and you tell me what your pet likes to eat, you know, the pet doggy or whatever it is. And I want you to imagine now that you're going to teach the, the your pet dog what's a good thing for him to eat because you're going to taste it yourself and figure out what are the things that you enjoy the most. You make a game of it. And children love games. And if you can do it in a way that they're identifying not with being a recalcitrant problem maker, but with the caretaker who's helping their little pet eat the food that's good for the pet, you can often engage children in that kind of a game and get them to do things that otherwise they'd be fighting you over. It's a very helpful advice. Again, I went away after listening to that and tried that on my young niece, and it seemed it seemed to work. Can I ask who hypnosis is not for? We talked about who it's for. Is there anyone who it just won't work for or any cases in which it's not worth trying? Um, well, I've, you know, I've had people who on formal testing are not hypnotizable. I do. I do. There is, a, by the way, on Reverie, your own self-hypnosis test. So in about six minutes, you can find out how hypnotizable you are by seeing if you can make your hand float up in the air. And if you pull it down, it just wants to float right back up. And some people that doesn't happen for. So what I do, the, the less hypnotizable people tend to be more sort of strictly logic oriented. They want explanations. They want to read about things before they do them rather than just dive in and do it. And so I will focus more on the cognitive strategy we use. Uh, I had a, a young woman who was pulling out her hair and she would, she said, I'm getting at my naughty nerves. And I had her focus uh, on on the idea of treating your body as you would treat uh, a pet or a baby. Would you ever pull hair out of your pet or of your child? No. Well, treat your body with the same respect. And if you have an impulse to pull out your hair, stroke it instead. So change the strategy, even if they don't feel anything different internally because they're not so hypnotizable. So it's the combination of the type of strategy you use with the altered state that gives you the most bang for the buck. But often just the strategy alone can help people who are not so hypnotizable. It's not dangerous. If people don't want to do it, they shouldn't do it. But it's remarkably safe compared to any medication we use. That notion of uh, treating your body like you would a child's body is also the way, isn't it, that you help people to give up smoking? Yes, that's exactly right. I, you know, I don't, it's not about the urge. You know, people, oh, I still have the urge and all that. That's not the issue. Um, what I ask to do, I ask people to think about is for my body, smoking is a poison. I need my body to live. I owe my body respect and protection. Would you ever put tar and nicotine smoke into the lungs of your baby? or your dog, or your cat. No. So instead of feeling you're depriving yourself, focus on what you're for, respecting and protecting your body. And this means that from the moment you make that commitment, you can feel good. You're not depriving yourself. And uh, I had one uh, woman who, she said, I smoked for 25 years. 
Um, I, I don't really want to stop. Uh, she tried going through that exercise with me. And the first time, she didn't particularly like it, using the app. That night, she went home and listened to the Reverie app. And she lit up her cigarette. She looked at it and she said, Feh, who needs this? And she put it out and she hasn't had a cigarette since. Her friends can't believe it. She was smoking for 25 years. And she said, this is some kind of crazy ass voodoo stuff. And I mean that in a good way. She said, she, and, and that's one of the coolest things about hypnosis is that people surprise themselves. They surprise their friends. They surprise themselves. I didn't think I could be like that because one of the things we've learned is that the thing that scares people, you know, the so-called suggestibility is really cognitive flexibility. You can try out being different and see what it feels like. And you may decide to go back to the way you were, but you can see what it feels like to be someone who treats his body with respect rather than someone who's putting poison in his body's lungs. So you see yourself as your body's keeper. That's a shift in perspective that can help people change in a hurry. In a hurry. That's a key, that's a key point. And my last question before audience questions, it, it does take work, though. So if it, like with all things, this is not something instantaneous. If you're feeling back pain and you're watching this or some sort of pain, you don't just imagine yourself in this warm bath and, you know, it miraculously appears. This is something you learn to do. You get better at. Is that right? Well, you do. But actually, uh, Hannah, I'll disagree with you a little bit. That That's one of the cool things about hypnosis is it can happen very quickly. So we're finding that people using reverie within 10 or 15 minutes feel different. They feel less pain. They feel less anxious. They can handle their urge to smoke in a totally different way. So what's pretty cool about it is that you can find out very quickly whether it's likely to help you. Can you, Do you need to continue to practice? Sure. Uh, can you get better at it? Absolutely. But people at the same time really surprise themselves that they can handle the urge differently. They can focus on what they're for, respecting and protecting their body. They can alter their perception of pain. They can alter the way they handle stress. They can get to sleep. Uh, I just got a patient the other day who who said, I'm here because a friend of mine said he saw you five years ago and he's sleeping now and I want to do the same. So people can learn very quickly how to try out being different and do it. And so you you don't you don't have to talk yourself into it. You don't have to understand why you got to the way you are. You can just try out being a different person and see what it feels like. So I'm going to uh, read some of the audience questions now. If I have some time, I'll come back to my own. Of course, people are going to want to know some specific uh, things relating to their own issues. Um, but I know that you can make them also sort of apply more widely. So actually, I think we might have answered one question, which is someone who practices yoga nidra. Do, are you familiar, a form of conscious sleep um, and wonders if that's a form of self-hypnosis? I haven't studied it uh, directly, but I, it wouldn't at all surprise me. I, it, you know, if you have someone who's pretty hypnotizable and does this combination of stilling your mind and putting your body in certain positions, I would imagine that you tap self-hypnotic abilities as well uh it's it's a different way of approaching it and you sort of but also like hypnosis you can start with the body up rather than the brain down so you put your body in certain positions that give you certain kinds of mental states and physical experiences so it's not the same but it's probably not entirely different either somebody asks about a family member who has 
I think I've got this right. Emitophobia, which is a fear of being sick. I've actually heard of the similar and wondered if hypnosis can help with that. Sure. I, I think what you can help people to do, you know, and particularly with being the fear of being sick, it involves interoception. So, you know, we have a part of the brain called the insula where the brain helps to control the body. In hypnosis, you increase your ability to control that region, but you also are more aware of what's happening in your body, interoception. And, and part of the danger with, with that kind of fear of being sick is the minute you start feeling that way, you start to physically not, you feel unwell. And then you think, Oh my God, it's really happening. You know, my stomach hurts or something else and it builds on itself. So I would start the way we do with stress with saying, okay, you may have a concern about your body, but let's get your body as comfortable as we can first. And then we'll look at the fear and what you can do about it. And if you really are sick, what will you do? How will you get help? And so on. So that they have a sort of strategy plan for dealing with it if in fact they get sick. But you start out by interrupting that cycle of mental worry and physical discomfort that seems to only confirm the fact that maybe you really are sick. So hypnosis can be very helpful in modulating that interaction between body and brain. Now, I think we have covered this, unless there's any other tips, but um, somebody said if they wake up in the early hours, wee hours of the night and aren't able to get back to sleep, is that a form of insomnia? And will hypnosis help? Yes, the answer is definitely yes. It's a, it's about the most popular program we have on the Reverie app. And um, it can be a form of uh, insomnia that is not at all uncommon. And, um, you know, I was worried when I when we built Reverie that um, it wouldn't be quite as good as being in the office with me. And so that's why we made it interactive and we structured it very carefully. But then I realized that in some ways it's better than being in the office with me, because if you wake up at three in the morning and want help getting back to sleep, you probably don't want me in your bedroom telling you what to do. What sorts of things, what sorts of things would, would you be talking people into and, and describing on that? Uh, for for insomnia. I, yeah. Yes. The first, I would do a couple of things. I would have them imagine, look up, close your eyes, take a deep breath, let your arm float up in the air and imagine you're somewhere where you feel safe and comfortable physically, a bath, a lake, a hot tub floating in space. Do the cyclic sighing, inhale, hold, inhale, and then slowly exhale. Very Exhale twice as long as the inhale period. And then picture either something, just picture a pleasant scene, somewhere you enjoy being, where you naturally feel good and relaxed. So use your brain then to help reinforce the physical comfort that you have. Or picture something good that happened to you the day before, uh, where you felt you helped somebody or you accomplished something. And get your brain focusing not on frustration about not sleeping, but on something that naturally makes you feel good and comfortable. And we find that it is very helpful to people in, in getting back to sleep. I mean, it's interesting you say that because I think probably the thing that most keeps people awake is that frustration, beating themselves up about the not sleeping. So how do they stop themselves from doing that? Because it is it's such an innately wired thing that you're checking your clock and you're feeling worried and more worried that you can't sleep. Right. And that I mean, all you're doing is waking yourself up. And one thing I advise people is turn your clock around, put it somewhere else. You don't want to know what time it is when you woke up because that's an arousal cue. You'll just wake yourself up more. And your bedroom, it should be a place for just 
sleep and pleasure and nothing else. You shouldn't do work in your bedroom. Just make it a place of comfort and help guide your body to a state where it will help you get back to sleep rather than get angry at it or worry about how you're going to feel at 7.15 when the alarm goes off and all that. Instead, focus on things that bring you comfort and pleasure and lead your body in that direction, and it will be easier for you to fall back to sleep. Okay, another relatively specific uh, question, but again, I know people who have this same phobia. So Viva says she cannot overcome her fear of driving a car. Her mother doesn't drive. I've never been in an accident. I cannot understand where the fear came from and now lives in a place with no public transport. Would hypnosis sort out this problem? Yes, absolutely. Um, and we have, there are a lot of people who are fearful about driving. And first of all, cultivate your ability to get your body comfortable and relaxed and focus on what you do. Many people kind of retreat from the car. You know, they sort of get disconnected in their heads. And what I encourage people who have fears of driving to do is to, without first driving, just get in the car and feel your connection to the control systems of the car, to the steering wheel, to the brake, to the accelerator. Feel your connection so that you experience the car as literally an extension of your body, which it is. And think of yourself driving, stopping, turning, the things you need to do, but do it in a way that instead of the car being a source of fear, it's a source of reassurance, that you're finding ways to extend your body and connect with it. And then drive slowly, carefully in a few places, but again, emphasizing your connection to the car and your control of the car. And so the minute you begin to treat it as an accessory that helps you rather than a threat, you start to be able to reduce that mental and physical interaction that tends to make you more anxious rather than less. Another question is about incorporating hypnosis into psychotherapy sessions. So presumably this person is talking about from, from them being a psychotherapist and themselves or a counsellor, um, how they introduce it or what sorts of ground rules to use. They were asking, um, you know, when you would bring it into a session. Well, there are, there are issues, uh, dealing with stress, working through issues of trauma or just controlling problems like insomnia, anxiety, where it can be very helpful. Um, obviously, you want to discuss it with people in advance and make sure that they're on board with doing it. I always start with a measure of hypnotizability, and the Reverie app can be used for that purpose. You can get an idea about whether you're low, mid-range, or high in hypnotizability. And what's nice about that is that it's it's an ex hypnotic experience that doesn't have anything to do with the problem you're trying to deal with. So it isn't all wound up with that. You can just try it and see what it feels like just to be hypnotized and then decide how you want to use it. Uh, but it can be very helpful for people to examine situations that they may not have fully understood. I had a man recently who had a, a, a genetic illness that limited his vision. It wasn't gone, but it was limited. And it made him anxious and concerned. And he decided he wanted to try hypnosis for it. And it wasn't that he was not willing to do as well as he could, but it turned out that he had used a little telescope to help supplement his vision, and that helped. But I had him in hypnosis. I said, let's see if we can, maybe your brain needs a little retraining. So let's have you use the telescope in your imagination. And he actually found that his vision got better 
just imagining he was using the supplement because his brain had gotten used to the fact that if he couldn't see clearly enough, he always had the telescope. So he was excited by the idea that after many decades of feeling limited by this, he was able to, it wasn't perfect, but it was better than it was. So you can use it to supplement other therapeutic techniques that you might use and intensify them and let people practice them. Really interesting. Uh, I, I like this question very much from Eva because she's talking, she's a writer, she says, but I think that her question applies generally to creativity, perhaps. Um, she says, I'm a writer with difficulties in writing, i.e. with starting the writing. Uh, are there any techniques or tips you can offer from a hypnosis perspective? Yes. You know, a lot of writers have, you know, what's called writer's block or, or procrastination. And uh, I'd say the in situations like that, the best is the enemy of the good, that, that many people get sort of tied up uh, because they want to express things perfectly and they sort of don't know where to begin. And so what we try to do is get people to use hypnosis, get their body comfortable, and then in their imagination, just envision not the whole story you're going to write, but how you might start it. Or who are the readers that you want to reach? And what do you think you could say that would hook them into the idea of reading the story? So reduce things to sort of manageable chunks, something that you can picture yourself doing very quickly and easily, and then a series of steps that will lead you to write the story. So you're not going to have a whole finished article done in 30 minutes. But you can picture the path that you would follow. And you could, some people like to actually see it as a path and what's over here and what's over there that allows them to make a scaffold upon which they can complete a story. So picture something um, that leads you to want to take a walk down that path rather than feeling overwhelmed and avoiding it. You're reminding me of a certain, uh, oh, yes, a roomy quote that I heard the other day. Um, as you start to walk on the way, the way appears, which is sort of what you're you're saying. Just begin, and then it will and then it will appear. Somebody asks whether hypnosis could help um, with bipolar and mental issues such as that, mental difficulties. It can, but I would say people with true bipolar disorder. This is one of those places where actually medications are extremely effective. Um, and uh, it, it's one of the, the really good stories in psychiatric medicine where uh, people who have this, where they get too high all the time and then they can just sort of crash and get down. Um, I would say hypnosis might help as a supplement if you're on mood stabilizers or lithium or something like that. I, I had one of my bipolar patients who said, Doc, I feel like I'm living inside a pipe. You know, I don't get too high, I don't get too low. So if on top of your mainstream treatment, you're finding that you're a little edgy or having a little trouble controlling your energy or feeling more down than you should. Hypnosis can help with that. It can help you put into perspective, you know, your excessively optimistic plans or your excessively uh, depressing and restrictive uh, thoughts about yourself. It can help you to sort of get them into perspective and not get overwhelmed by them, but in conjunction with standard medication. A lot of what you've been talking about in terms of things people can do to rearrange their thoughts, to change their thought patterns, sounds very similar to cognitive behavioral therapy and other talking therapies. But I have read that it's actually advisable to do both of these things together to 
substitute, as you say, hypnosis with cognitive behavioral therapy, or is one does one suffice? Well, it depends. I would say the nice thing about hypnosis is you know pretty quickly whether it's likely to help or not. So there's no harm in trying it first. There are times when using hypnosis as a way of intensifying your focus of attention and then using it to focus on the steps you would take in CBT to picture the problem framed in a different way, um, to recognize that you can take one step at a time uh, to challenge your distorted notions about how bad you are or how dangerous things are uh, one step at a time. There are times when I think the two put together can be very helpful too. The nice thing about hypnosis is that you can feel very quickly whether it's likely to help with CBT. You need a certain amount of practice and structure and homework to make sure you do it long enough that you see the result. But yes, I, I see no harm at all in trying to combine the two. We started off talking about the hypnotic state that you experience when you're watching a film or reading a book, the flow state I was mentioning, when you're really absorbed in something creative. Do you advocate that people try to do that more to just boost their mental health? Does getting absorbed in those sorts of states help more generally and more widely? Absolutely. I think we, you know... (laughs) We live in the Garden of Eden and we're kind of messing it up, but we don't enjoy it enough. And there's plenty of evidence that just taking a little bit of time to get lost in a sunset or take a walk and just enjoy, you know, the beauty of nature, having a shift in your routine with a little more physical activity, uh, but also learning to appreciate the beauty of life, the joy of being with friends or loved ones. The way in which there's there's some studies that show that dancing um, is actually an excellent exercise in part because it forces you to coordinate your physical and emotional activity with someone else's social support is tremendously important. And there's something hypnotic like about falling in love, being with a loved one. So let your brain shift gears in that way. Let yourself get absorbed in things that you enjoy. It's good for them and it's good for you. And it is often hypnotic like. Okay, there was one other question I don't think that I got to that someone was asking about something you refer to in a paper, which is more about using hypnosis to overcome past trauma that's still affecting people now. And there are some techniques that you actually suggest to help with that people who are still traumatized by things that have happened in the past. I would say in general, yes, you know, one of the one of the terrible burdens that people who have been uh, victimized in one way or another uh, is uh, that they tend to blame themselves for events they didn't control. We would often rather feel guilty than helpless. And hypnosis can be very useful in saying, go back to that situation. Your body is safe and comfortable now. Picture yourself as a child when you were hurt and answer the question, was was this your fault? Um, should you blame yourself for what happened, for what someone else did to you or something like that? And very often, there's a kind of release that comes where people look at that and they just say, no, that, that wasn't my fault. And so I said, be a good parent to yourself as a child. And and I've had people say things like, I'm stroking your hair, I'm stroking your hair, and feeling relieved of a burden of sadness and, and self-blame that they didn't deserve. So it can be a way of... Getting back, getting in touch with an earlier situation, 
But then being able to step away from it again, not feeling immersed in it all the time, it can really help people change their perspective on important aspects of themselves. So just my final question then from all you've said is that we should let go perhaps of this idea that hypnosis is being under a sort of a spell from which you emerge when someone clicks a finger. It just isn't that. It is much more about the way you talk to yourself, the way you think of your mind and your body. It's a much more that. It is not this idea that you come out of a trance or go into one. That's that's beautifully put. And that's why we built Reverie, is to give people that experience of just being able to experience themselves from a different perspective, to explore capacities for change, for self-understanding that they may not have previously utilized. And it's a natural ability that many of us have and and can take full advantage of with techniques like Reverie. So you've put it very beautifully that that's right. It's a different way of experiencing yourself. And the world. And the world. Uh, well, on that, it's very neatly, uh, we've had our hour, but um, it's it's fascinating to hear from you. And um, I hope we didn't send anyone off to sleep with the breathing and the techniques uh, half an hour ago. And thank you as ever to the audience who've signed in. Fantastic questions. And I hope we got through all of them. Eva, who asked about the writing, says big thank you uh, to both of you. So thank you very much. Thanks from me. Uh, and thank you uh, to all of you. Thank you so much, Hannah. This episode starred David Spiegel and was presented by Hannah McInnes. It was produced by Nicole Wong and edited by John Doughty. If you enjoyed the episode, consider taking out a subscription to HowTo Plus. Our members get access to every live stream we host and half-price tickets to our shows in London. With the code POD50, all caps POD50, you can get a permanent half-price discount. Find out more at howtoacademy.com. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.